America is back. Diplomacy is back. Well, you know, one minute, one minute, okay. We are present everywhere, from Lithuania to the Sahel, to Afghanistan, to Iraq, to Lebanon. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Welcome back to a brand new season of War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group. I'm your host, Orda Oliker, speaking to you from Brussels. And I'm your co-host, Hugh Pope, also here in Belgium. And we are really excited and think we're about to bring you a super interesting third season. We're still plotting out the details, what will change, what will keep the same. But our goal, as always, is to bring you really terrific discussions. So for the first one of those, we are, we're thrilled to have with us for this episode, entrepreneur and philanthropist, Jim Balsilli. Uh, Jim is the retired uh, chair and co-CEO of Research in Motion, uh, now known as BlackBerry. Also the founder of the Balsilli School of International Affairs, the Center for Digital Rights, the Institute for New Economic Thinking, co-founder and chair of the Center for International Governance Innovation, CG. And Jim is here with us to discuss technology governance and the questions of um, economic and political stability that technology governance, or lack thereof, raises. So welcome, Jim. It is a pleasure to have you with us. Oh, it's a real pleasure to be with you today. And I thank you for your great work that you do at the International Crisis Group and commend you for it. Thank you so much. So you and your company have been working at the forefront of, you know, dare I say, revolution in communications and connectivity uh, that has struck us over recent decades. But you have over time grown increasingly concerned about the dangers, kind of the flip side of what we've all embraced in being so connected and being able to share information. You're on record with things like data is not the new oil, it's the new plutonium. You've talked about exploitative practices by technology firms. So I want to ask you, kind of starting out, what is it that makes you nervous? Uh, what do you think we should all be uh, afraid of here? Well, really, in the digital transformation and the global rule of law framework that's been forged to govern innovation over the last three decades, it stayed fairly principally in the economic realm. And as we moved to the data-driven economy, the focus shift from the knowledge-based economy, controlling data and assets, and it really became a cross-cutting force with uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence where it moved from the economic sphere into the geostrategic military sphere, into the social sphere, that is fundamentally about surveilling people and undermining their personal autonomy and move them in their direction that serve the interests of the controller of that information. So it took the governance issue right to the top of the priority. And that's when I started to see the effects of this new machine learning a data-driven economy, I became quite concerned with its negative spillovers. So, you know, the thing we always hear about when people talk about the dangers, they talk about disinformation and misinformation, that lies spread quickly, but you're talking about something else. You're not talking about people telling untruths and others believing them. You're talking about the ways that one can be surveilled and controlled and one's rights limited. That's right. I mean, these new uh, technologies have become a, a veritable digital nervous system that really are tracking and controlling everything. And so the principal question is, what is the system designed for? 
And, um, you know, in a sense, to simplify it, there's a couple uh, structures out there now. One is it's designed for engagement, for private uh, gain in private corporations and whatever it takes to create that engagement, whether it's and it's general, it's well documented that it's about um, triggering negative emotions. It's about spreading misinformation, whatever it takes to strike more intense engagement is more profitable and obviously that has enormously negative spillovers to society and security in the world or you could design it as a state-controlled medium for state tyranny and control where these are used for oversight and uh, control of people even to the point where you start doing uh, mind management because you're always signaling and triggering them and creating response mechanisms. So it goes right to the most basic root of human autonomy, whether it's at a a state-controlled level that's not benign, or it's at a private-controlled level, which is equally not neutral and, and far too often not benign. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Jim, can you tell us a little about how your thinking has evolved over time? Because obviously, you know, in the past, there have been other media that have had a grip on people's imaginations, even driving whole nations to war. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about how this is different from the media addictions we may have had in the past? Well, it's at a whole new level because when you used to have media of a more traditional sphere, it was a shared space. And uh, whether it was broadcast media, and we have to understand there was a lot of interplay to get the media right for public good and public shared knowledge, and also to check power. What's particularly dangerous about uh, this new media is that, one, there's not a shared reality like we used to have. It's tailored reality for whatever uh, is necessary. And these algorithms have become so powerful, it's not the same kind of media that it used to be. So in a sense, when something is so profoundly more powerful that its nature is different, then you can't look at it with the same toolkit that you used to have. But that being said, in the past, we've managed media through broadcast acts and other kinds of regulatory and codes of conduct. And We're well overdue for this in the digital media. What's particularly tricky about this new digital media, it's got such a fast-moving international character and it's got much more powerful capability and therefore it has much more profound cross-cutting consequences, not only economic but on, on the personal social, whether it's democracy, whether it's the autonomy and mental health of children or whether it's geostrategic issues between large uh, geopolitical actors or within nation states that are adverse to core human rights. So it's a very different beast than before. Can you talk a little bit about how you see it playing out geostrategically with different countries that have different interests in terms of, well, for instance, what the governance might look like? Well, I mean, I strongly advocate for more sovereign approaches to this because it represents sovereign accountable accountability in a democratic state to citizens, both for their own security, for a fair share of the economy, and also for the management of their social sphere in accordance to their norms. However, the problem is, is we're seeing a tremendous geostrategic contention between Europe in a much more, shall we say, personal rights point of view with their regulation, which is called general data 
protection regulation. You've seen the United States with much more of a corporate point of view, although there's lots of national security in there too. And you've seen China with their state surveillance. But also you've seen, uh, and it's well documented, how social media has been used for to foam various forms of anti-democratic acts, whether it's in Hungary or Poland, but far more extreme in the genocide in Myanmar. And it's, it's also well documented how the Taliban have used social media totally legally to better leverage and perform the various activities they do. So it needs some form of global governance approach where we reinforce norms, knowing that there's going to be a dividing line for now between democratic and non-democratic. And I think we're going to go through a challenging time before this gets clear, but it needs just a tremendous amount of attention right now so that we make this technology work for us, not turn against us. Jim, you've been involved in technology, the forefront of technology for a long time. When when was the first time that you personally became aware of the impact of these forces at work? I began my career in what we would call the the knowledge-based economy, which was really the strategic focus of, of generating controlling intellectual property, such as patents and copyrights. And that was about 30 years ago. And then that, that framework evolved around 15, 16, 17 years ago to the data-driven economy, where the focus did move to developing and controlling uh, data assets. But I experienced it very much on its economic realm, where it, it has natural monopolistic tendencies because of the nature of data. The big get bigger, and there's a bunch of economic ways to categorize that, but the first big mover tends to do very well. But I think with a, a lot of people, right around the Brexit election and the Trump election, you could see that these algorithms had really crossed over to be something much more powerful that uh, could affect the democratic process. And then also became much aware, probably about eight, nine years ago, how much China was surging in its work and also its filing of patents and artificial intelligence. And in parallel with that, I have a couple of good friends who are psychiatrists and work in behavioral science. And they really shared with me the, the research on how there had been such uh, mental health happening at key development realms of, of youth. And I started to see the nature of this in its negative spillovers. And that, I would say, was about... Uh, seven years ago, six, seven years ago, uh, 2015. Uh, I think that's when uh, the Brexit and the Trump was coming along. And then I started to dig into it beyond its economic and how the force had, and that's where it concerned me much more beyond its economic. I'd been very active in the economic realms of these things and fair access to the economy for various, its inequitability and also different um, economies having a fair access to this for the prosperity issues, but it was about then. So global governance is hard. It's hard to get countries to agree on anything, as you alluded to, kind of democracies versus autocracies. But even there, it's who's a democracy, who's an autocracy. Lots of countries that view themselves as democracies actually do want to have all sorts of controls. And controlling data is difficult. So what can be done? How does one do it both at the sovereign level and at the global level? I think we can um, 
draw some lessons from history here and really extend it from there. You know, we have to remember that post-World War II, we created the Bretton Woods institutions to better coordinate global trade and global commerce. And in the tangible economy and liberalizing aspects of productivity and prosperity uh, globally, in many respects, it, it served us very, very well. And then as the world became more globalized, we had the financial crisis and we created a financial stability board to deal with the, the spillover effects of, of not managing the banking system well, granted within a narrow element of the economy. And I think the approach for these data governance issues is that they're going to be something like the Financial Stability Board for digital is a good idea. It's multi-stakeholder. It's about policy development. It's about um, establishing norms and policy research. The tricky part about data, as you said, is everybody's invested in banking stability. doesn't matter what other norms you have in your society. But data embeds norms. And therefore, there's going to be those that are more human rights versus more state control. And it also embeds geostrategic power. And so it's a much more complex realm. But I think uh, the West is at its best when it leads with values. It leads with human liberty. It leads with democracy. It leads with human safety. And therefore, if we see these for their domestic and international concurrently, but also cross-cutting concurrently nature, that you have to start to begin with the, the governance and the policy and the research and the multi-stakeholders on it. You're listening to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group. And Hugh and I are talking to Jim Balsilli about internet governance and the lack thereof and ensuing dangers. War and Peace a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Jim, one of the things that you have focused on in, in your outreach about what can be done is the ending targeted political advertising to individuals. Is that something that you think can be achieved? Oh, absolutely. I think the uh, Europe has done some very good constraints on political advertising. And in fact, they treat it almost at the most, at the highest level of special partitioning and treatment because it undermines the very democratic processes that make us free democratic societies. So I think that the EU is a model for that. The other thing is, is that th there's a lot of regulatory capture between these data-driven companies and political actors. And you can cheat in democracy if you can undermine people's inf uh, personal autonomy, create tailored message that hijacks them into your thinking. And therefore, you have to, as I say, cut the head off of that snake where the politicians have an incentive to cooperate with these firms because one way to say it is, you know, we'll allow you to cheat in markets if you allow us to cheat in elections. So if you cut off the cheating in elections, then perhaps the public good will come to the fore to look after people, not only in the economy, but also the, the social and security realm. So I think the one of the most important parts is to get this force out of elections and ban personally targeted ads and tremendous transparency in this realm. And Europe is doing a lot to lead the world in it. And I commend them for it, but there's a lot more work to do. I mean, as somebody who lives in Europe, every time I pull up my browser and look for something, I 
am bombarded with, you know, this website uses cookies. Which of these cookies do you want? Don't you want all of the cookies? Surely you want all the cookies. And if I don't want all of the cookies, then I have to, you know, open up link and go through it all. It's actually fairly labor intensive for the end user. It's uh so the question is, you know, can you embed regulation in a way where the default actually is to more security rather than less? Because I would say the current system, I think the easiest thing to do is to say, yes, I love my cookies. They're going to let people target advertising to me. I want, and then you're back where you started. Yeah. And that's very fair. I mean, is it, should it be an opt-in or opt-out system and how do you design the consents and what do the consents really entail? I think that's an incredibly fair uh, question. The other thing is, is when something has such public good characteristics, when I consent, I have effects on those around me. And so therefore, what things can you really consent into and consent away is ex- extremely important. And also when, when these become uh, fundamental human rights, you cannot consent away things. You cannot consent away loved ones into indentured servitude and so on. And so, you know, these become the kinds of issues of consent, what you're actually allowed to consent to, how does that affect others? What is the public good? And then really goes to the question, if these have tremendous public good natures and you have to design for public good, what parts of these should be public infrastructure? Should the amplification engine be for a media to an individual be through a private actor that's there to trigger negative emotion? Or should it be through some kind of much more transparent public utility that is much more neutral and does not use personal profiling? I mean, all of this innovation just so that I can be served better ads that what this is all about when it's got so many other negative spillovers. Another question I'd have is these kinds of regulations are are feasible in the European Union, presumably also in many other Northern Hemisphere countries. But as you yourself said, when pointing to the conflict-related magnification, amplification of social media, it's in Myanmar, it's in Afghanistan. We at Crisis Group have written about it in El Salvador, in Cameroon and other places. First of all, how do you get the same kind of regulatory movement going in the global south. And the second one is, how do you mobilize people even in the global north to get excited enough to act on these questions, which, as uh, Olya rightly said, most people are just dazed by cookie requests and uh, make the jump to political action. Or they like the good ads, right? I mean, I've talked to people who are like, oh my God, it's fantastic. Amazon knows exactly what I need. And I think, oh my God, that's terrifying. Amazon knows exactly what you need. <laughs> I think we will look back in this time almost with horror, and I don't know how long it'll be that we exposed our societies and are most vulnerable to these kinds of forces because we quote unquote liked it. I think uh, those of us of our vintage, you only have to look back a generation or two and look at how people dealt with drinking and driving, smoking in the classroom, the treatment of gender and visible minorities, the despoiling of the environment, things that we just shudder at now were quite frankly the norm not a long period of time ago. So I think there's exceptional leaders out there in the world that are doing, that are calling attention, are doing research, are advocating for good public policies. I think we have to be very careful that these things don't go to a a tipping point of too far and that the debate becomes, you know, pick our tyrant versus their tyrant 
because we're a better tyrant, at least it's our tyrant. No, we're about something much, an idea that is much more important than that. And so I'm an optimist. I'm an entrepreneur, so I'm always an optimist. I think you've seen remarkable progress in society in many realms, so that shows it's possible. But we have to see these these technologies in their current ungoverned fashion as remarkably regressive forces for narrow, specific uh, private gain. And this has to be addressed. And, and yes, it's a bit of a wicked problem because it's moving fast. It's cross-cutting in realms that are beyond economic and non-economic, domestic and international, and it's all concurrently. I respect the fact that this is a hard challenge. So I, I think the idea of a convening body of multi-stakeholders, of good uh, experts, begins to illuminate the approach on that. And, and we're seeing the new U.S. administration is attuned to it. Europe's attuned to it. You know, Australia has been a great leader. So I'm optimistic on progress in, in many of the realms, competition, human rights, and so on. So, But there is a lot of work to do, and it needs to be dealt with urgently. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. And to follow up on Hugh's point, there is a rich, poor, north-south, however you, progressive, less progressive, however you want to think about a divide on these things. How, I mean, and again, we can see that European regulations do affect you in Europe and not outside of Europe. So you can see some of how this might work. But if that's how it works, then you've got regulation that you know only covers those who want it or the, you know those whose governments have opted in. And these are borders that are very porous. Do you have a vision for how this goes broader? Or is it just you kind of wait for the norms and the values to grow organically? Well, I mean, a lot of this is about the rule of law frameworks that we've established to govern these technologies and govern the ownership of it. And the issue is machine learning is a general purpose technology that is affecting all aspects of society. And it, it leads to the winners gaining enormously enhanced social, economic, technological, and, and military power. So how do you allow a nation state to get a fair shake at the uh, economic returns and the sovereignty in, in this global system? And we've seen a little bit of an early taste of that in vaccine diplomacy. We're about, in the intellectual property side of it, we're about to see, I believe, a very heightened contention on the intellectual property side of it for uh, climate management technologies. Because again, it's the rich getting richer through control of intangibles. And these things scale infinitely. And the owners of them, per a social framework, that get enormously enhanced benefits. And then others are getting whatever leftover. So the structure of the system is manufacturing inequities in wealth and, and power, uh, both within nation states and between nation states. Do you deal with it ex post through distributive things? Do you deal it ex ante in um, rethinking the design of the system that naturally leads to inequities? So the trading of tangible goods, it was a bit of a rising tide raises all boats because you traded on comparative advantage. So you got some benefit in from being in the global economy. But the ideas economy works on absolute advantage where the big can just get bigger and the rich get richer and the powerful get more powerful. And I think that beckons enormous questions of how we design these systems, as I said, for global health on pandemic vaccines, for clean sustainability, for clean technologies. And now you have this new technology force, which affects both those two things, 
but all other kinds of cross-cutting good, including military contention and state security. So, yeah, this is a new force. You know, as McLuhan said, the first thing you have to do is understand it. And then you start to corral it for your interests so that it doesn't turn against you. And that's why I think this conversation is so extremely important. And we have much more to do. Do you see a positive side to all this that could possibly counteract all the the, the negative forces you are? I mean, for instance, I can see that, uh, yes, big data is allowing states ever more surveillance capacity and so forth. But doesn't it also give the ordinary individuals, these wonderful startups like Bellingcat, that can really trace things deep into other countries through the public networks that have been opened up? Isn't, isn't there a natural counterbalance that keeps us safe? First of all, I believe in technology. I believe in capitalism. I believe in entrepreneurship. Absolutely, tech can be a tremendous force for good, just as a car can be a tremendous force to, for good. But you put rules that people can't drive 200 kilometers an hour in front of a school drunk. And so, you know, absolutely, we can harness technology for all kinds of, we're going to need it to address pandemics. We're going to need it for global security. We're going to need it to deal the climate crisis, but you have to govern technology so that it's applied for its potential for good. And absolutely, I believe in technology. I want to see it harnessed. But don't assume that, you know, you're going to get the good and the good will outweigh the bad and that's all fine. We used rules to change workplace conditions where there was, you know, right from slavery to child labor to unfair and unsafe work laws to discrimination against other vulnerable communities. Capitalism has always progressed to say, I want the good, but I want to to put guardrails around the bad. This is a new force and it goes right into a form of human autonomy, which makes it pernicious. It goes global at the click of a mouse. It scales infinitely almost uh, limitless. So it need, it has a certain urgency to its governance. But I absolutely believe in the potential of technology, but I also ne- know it needs to be governed. So I think that's a perfect note to end this on, which is convenient because uh, it's also the perfect minute mark to end it on. So Jim, thank you so much for joining us. This was a really terrific way to start off our season three. Great to be with you, Olga and Hugh, and keep up your great work. And I love uh, listening to all the great conversations you do. So thank you for uh, inviting me to be with you today. Listeners, uh, we hope you learned as much as we have today. For more insights, you can follow the Center for International Governance Innovation on Twitter. Uh, They're at CIGI online. You should also follow Crisis Group and us on Twitter. Uh, Crisis Group is at Crisis Group. Hugh is Hugh at Hugh underscore Pope. And I'm at O-L-Y-A-O-L-I-K-E-R. You can also check us out on Facebook and Instagram where Crisis Group is also at Crisis Group. And for Crisis Group's own work on technology and conflict, do check out the Global Issues tab on the left-hand side of your website screen at www www.crisisgroup.org. War and Peace is a partner in a network of podcasts about Europe. Uh, check out Europod or some of the others. And please do feel free to tweet at us if you have any suggestions or at podcasts at crisisgroup.org if you have anything you'd like to draw to our attention. We will listen, especially as we plot this new season coming up. And if you're listening through iTunes, we'd love it if you could leave us a rating and a review as well. And the biggest thanks, as always, go to you, our listeners. We're looking forward to chatting with you again in about two weeks and to a terrific new season. 
And a big thanks to our producer, Bull Media, and to our own coordinator, Rebecca Zerihuna Asifa, and all the others who make sure that Olya and I know what we're doing every time we record a new episode. Okay, thank you, Jim. This was great. Thank you and goodbye. I hope it was helpful. I hope we, we, we unpacked it a little bit for people that's not too dense. <laughs> Well, wonderful. Well, it's a pleasure to support you. Keep up your great work, and I hope your listeners find it helpful and happy to support you again in any way I can be helpful. I'm a fan, so uh, keep up your great work. Take care. Have a good day. Be well. Bye-bye. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group.